If you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we will be in verses 1 through 18 this afternoon. This is not the first time that we have been in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. About five years ago, in uh, 2018, we did an Advent series through these, uh, these verses and spent four Sundays meditating on them. Uh, there is a, a link there in your, in your bulletin. If you're interested in meditating on these further, you can go back and revisit those sermons. Fair warning, I've borrowed from them liberally because they're mine. <laughs> and so it's not plagiarism, I guess. But you may hear some themes repeated if you go back and listen to those. But um, I'm sure that they would still be, I hope that they would still be encouraging. Uh, also, uh, during that Advent season, our Advent poems were based on John 1, 1 through 18. And I made some copies of those that are on the back table if you'd like something else to help you meditate on John 1, 1 through 18. Uh, last week, as we began this series in the Gospel of John with an overview sermon, we established that John wrote this Gospel as, a, as an eyewitness to the, the life and the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, so that we might believe in Jesus and find life in him. That's what we said is our big idea for the whole uh, Gospel of John, believe in Jesus and find life in him. We also said that throughout this study, we're going to find ourselves asking and answering four questions. We'll answer more questions than these, but these will often come up as we look at John's gospel. They are, who is Jesus? How is he being revealed? What does it mean to believe in him? And what is the life that he is offering? We covered those last uh, Sunday, so I won't uh, belabor those questions, but I'll say them one more time. Who is Jesus? How is he being revealed? What does it mean to believe in him, and what is the life that he is offering? In answering those questions throughout these coming studies, today is, is no exception. Uh, they won't form the outline for this sermon, but you'll hear uh, echoes of answers to those questions as we go uh, through John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Uh, it should come as no surprise that these first verses of John's gospel address those key questions because this introduction or, or what we might call a prologue lays out many of the, the major themes of this gospel. If you wanted to, you could go through these first 18 verses and you could circle some words. You could circle life, light, witness, receive, believe, glory, grace, and truth. And in doing so, you would find some of the major themes of the Gospel of John. And in fact, our big idea from the prologue is going to find connections uh, back to the reason that John gives us for writing his Gospel in chapter 20. What we find in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 is this. The Word has come into his world to reveal the glory and grace of God so that all who believe in him can be called God's children. The word has come into his world to reveal the glory and grace of God so that all who believe in him can be called God's children. It's funny, isn't, that, isn't it, that I can summarize the whole of John's gospel in eight words, but use 27 words for the first 18 verses? 
<laughs> but there you have it. Here's our big idea again. The word has come into his world to reveal the glory and grace of God so that all who believe in him can be called God's children. These verses and their references to the incarnation, to the, the coming of Jesus into the world, remind us that the story of the gospel is about a rescue mission. Maybe you can think about a movie or a television show or a book where a, a hero or maybe a group of heroes or maybe just some ordinary people are trying to save a person or maybe trying to save a city or maybe trying to save the whole world. They're on a, a rescue mission. I'd give you examples, but there's too many to choose from. Uh, they, they run the gamut, don't they? From Paw Patrol to the Lord of the Rings. People are on a rescue mission. So many stories are built on this idea of a rescue mission, and maybe that's a whisper of the need of the gospel in our own hearts. Because the story that John is telling is about God himself entering his world to save his people and to save them so that he can make them a part of his family. There's an interesting dichotomy. The story is so grand in its scope. God himself is entering into the world that he has made to rescue his people. And yet it's so intimate. He's coming into his world to save his people. Why? So that he can make them members of his family. So that they can, make, they can be children of God forever. The world, the, the, the word has come into his world to reveal the glory and the grace of God so that all believe in him, who, all who believe in him can be called God's children. Today my hope is that we will see just who the word is that we will marvel at what God has done through the incarnation, through the sending of Jesus to, to save us, that we will see, uh, that, that we will see the, the need of believing in this one who has entered into our world to save us, and that we'll see the beauty of what he has saved us into and be moved into worship and awe and, and joy. Well, let's begin by reading John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. This is what God's word says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The word has come into his world to reveal, his glory, to reveal the glory and grace of God so that all who believe in him can be called God's children. We're going to cover a lot today, so let me begin by just letting you know what my three points are, so hopefully you will be able to follow along with them. They are verses 1 through 5, Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. Verses 6 through 13, witnesses and responses. And then verses 14 through 18, Jesus reveals God to us. So Jesus is the Word, witnesses and responses, and Jesus reveals God to us. To us, John, John begins his gospel with the beginning, and not the beginning of Jesus' ministry. That's actually how Mark begins his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in fact, Mark's introduction could have been in John's mind when he wrote this, but what was most certainly in John's mind were the opening words of Genesis that Trevor read for us earlier. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and like Genesis, John begins with the beginning of all things, and even the time before anything other than God existed. The way he, he states it is that in the beginning was the Word. Eventually, John makes clear that the Word he is speaking of is the Jesus that he is going to tell us about. So let's take as this first, our first point for today, in answer to that question, who is Jesus, the simple yet fathomless thought that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the Word. That's familiar to us, but we still can be confused and a little bit uncertain as to why John is using the word word to identify Jesus. Why, why does he use that word? What's the significance of calling Jesus the Word? In part, it communicates the order and the wisdom of God. That's what word partly communicates the order and the wisdom of God. We're supposed to have Genesis 1 in our head, remember, and therefore we remember that there at the beginning of time, it was God's creative word that brought order to chaos. God spoke, and he made the world a place of order and logic and reason. Genesis also reminds us that the word of God in the Old Testament has power to do what God designs and desires. God's word goes forth, and it accomplishes his will. In some small way, this, this might remind us of Alexa or Siri or some other voice-activated device where our words spoken out loud can actually make things happen. Of course, God does more than check the weather with his voice. He creates the world. And now as his word goes forth, it is to accomplish the creation of spiritual light and life that find their source in Jesus by saying that Jesus is the word, John helps us to understand that Jesus is the wisdom of God who comes with creative power to bring order and life to the world. So if God is going to bring about new creation, he's going to do it in the same way that he brought about the creation of the word. He's going to do it through his word, and the word is Jesus. Another reason that John may have referred to Jesus as the word has as much to do with John's strategy as with the truth that he is conveying. 
We said last week that John is writing so that we, his readers, will believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would find life in his name. And he refers to Jesus as the word in part to avoid misunderstanding. Why does he call Jesus the word to avoid misunderstanding? If John simply started his gospel by saying that Jesus was the Son of God, it had potential to backfire on him. J.I. Packer offers this insight with that, into that regard. It says, Packer writes, John knew that the phrase son of God was tainted with misleading associations in the minds of his readers. Jewish theology used it as a title for the expected human Messiah. Greek mythology told of many sons of gods, supermen born of a union between a god and a human woman. In neither of these cases did the phrase convey the thought of personal deity. In both, indeed, it excluded it. John wanted to make sure that when he wrote of Jesus as the Son of God, he would not be understood, that is misunderstood, in such senses as these. He wanted to make it clear from the outset that the sonship which Jesus claimed and which Christians ascribed to him was precisely a matter of personal deity and nothing less. Hence, this famous prologue. So John wants us to know that Jesus is not some lesser being or that Jesus is not simply the pinnacle of God's creation. He wants us to know that Jesus is God himself. And so he reveals him as the word. By saying Jesus is the word, he not only avoids the misunderstandings that could come from the other titles, but he also is leveraging the power of the word word. There was power in the word, word within culture. For the Jewish people, as they gathered in the synagogue and the scriptures were read, they would not read the covenant name of God aloud. They would find appropriate substitutes. And do you know what one such substitute that was regularly used was? Word. They would use the word, word to refer to God in the covenant name. And it wasn't just Hebrew culture that where word carried weight. In Greek culture, the word, the, the logos, referred to something or someone of, of deep significance. So, so John calls Jesus the word as a reminder of all that we find in Genesis. Also as a, as a means of avoiding misunderstandings that could, could have arisen if he used other titles. And also to leverage the power of this word, word, in his culture. And from there then, he gives us all these adjectives to add to the word so that it can fill out its meaning. So first he says that Jesus is the eternal word. He is the eternal word. As we saw already, John takes us to the time before time, and by so doing, we discover that Jesus, the eternal word, is not the product of God's creation. Jesus was not created. For something to be created, there must have been a time when it was not an artist creates when she paints and she, she brings something into being that had never before existed. Kids, some of you like to draw pictures on Sundays. And as you draw that picture, you're making something, you're creating something that is unique in this world. But Jesus, the Son, was not created in any sense of the word. Because he was with God in the beginning. And as verse 3 says, without him... Nothing was made that was made. There was never a time when he was not, because he is the eternal word. And that eternality leads us to say also that he is the divine word. 
He's the divine word. Verse 1 tells us that the word was not only with God, but it was God. He was God. Those two phrases are perfectly crafted to help us understand who God is. First, the fact that Jesus was with God tells us that he has always existed, but it also helps us to see that Jesus was distinct from God the Father. That while there is one true and living God, he exists in three persons who are different from one another. Imagine you arrive at a party with your significant other and someone says, are you together? And you say, yeah, she's with me. Well, if you're with someone, you, you are not that person. You are associated with them. You are in close proximity to them. You may be intertwined with them, but you are not them. And yet, and yet also, while being distinct and different, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are also equal to one another and have always coexisted. John affirms this in his statement that the Word was God. He was with God, but he also was God. In a sense, like a husband and a wife who are distinct persons are also one flesh. In that way, the, the persons in the Godhead are distinct, and yet they are one. You got a headache yet? Talking about eternality of God, talking about the, the Trinity. Well, let's keep going. The Father, if, think about the Trinity, that the Father is equal to the Son, and the Son is equal to the Spirit, and the Spirit is equal to the Father in their divinity, but the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Father, nor is the Father the Spirit. God is united and equal in his persons, but he is also distinct. There is only one God, but he exists in three persons, and Jesus, the Word, as a part of the triune God, is truly divine. His eternality shows that deity, but we can also see that Jesus' role in creation shows his deity, because Jesus is not only the eternal Word and the divine Word, he is the creative Word. He is the creative Word. The Word is the creator of the world. Verse 3 states this both positively and negatively. It says that he made all things and that nothing was made apart from him. So there are no exceptions. The word made the world and everything that fills it. Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. And John 1 helps us to see that creation was accomplished by God's spoken word, but more importantly, by and through Jesus, because he is the word of God. And as the creative word, he specifically created life. So he is forth the life-giving word. He's the life-giving word. Jesus didn't simply make mountains and plants and animals. He created human beings in his image. And then he breathed the breath of life into their souls. He breathed the breath of life into your soul. As the life-giving word, he animates all things. And he preserves and sustains all life. He's like... He's like that power strip that's behind your television that everything else is plugged into. Jesus is the source of all life. He is the one source of all life. You, you live and you move and you have your being because Jesus has given and continues to give you life. Nothing lives apart from him and nothing continues to live apart from him because life itself is not simply from him, it is in him. He gives life to all things because he is the source of all life and he is also the source of all light. He is the light-giving word. What a beautiful picture, the light-giving word. 
into the, the chaos and the darkness of the world of Genesis 1-1, God spoke and his word brought order and it brought light. And as Jesus comes into our dark world, he brings light. Verse five tells us that it is a light so pure and so bright that there is no darkness that can overcome it. If you go to Mammoth Cave just south of us and you go on a guided tour, at some point they will, they will turn off all the lights to show you just how dark it is. But what I've found in recent visits to Mammoth Cave is that's a lot harder to do than it used to be because of the ubiquity of all of our devices and all of the lights that are around us. It seems harder to achieve total darkness now than it used to be because even the smallest bit of light breaks up the darkness. Sometimes our world can feel like a cave. There are a lot of dark corners around us. There's a lot of dark corners in us. But there is no darkness so great that Jesus cannot bring light and life into it. There is no one so lost in the night that Jesus cannot find them. There's no sin in your life that is so great that Jesus can't forgive it. There is no situation so hopeless that Jesus can't help. Who is Jesus? John tells us he is the eternal divine, creative, life-giving, light-giving word, which means he is God himself. John doesn't tiptoe around this, does it? It's in the first sentence. He wants us to believe right off the bat from the very beginning that Jesus, the word, is God. Because if we're going to have any hope of eternal life, if we're going to have any hope of everlasting light, we are only going to find it by believing in God. And that's who Jesus is. But the question then becomes, as is throughout the Gospel of John, will we receive the word? Will we welcome Jesus, our rescuer, or will we reject him? And so John takes a sharp turn, but it's actually a very logical turn in verses 6 through 13, and he starts to talk about witnesses and responses. So we've just talked about how Jesus is the word. Let's talk about witnesses and responses in verses 6 through 13. Again, it's a theme that's going to be borne out throughout the gospel, but John distills it down into a few verses, uh, distills down into a few verses what we're going to see over and over again as the witnesses of Jesus' life confront people's hearts and lives. He focuses here on two witnesses. First, it's the witness of John the Baptist. The first is the witness of John the Baptist. Just to be clear, John is not talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus' relative John, who was born a few months before him to Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age. This is John the Baptist, the first witness to Jesus. And he serves as a prototype here of all of the witnesses that the Gospel of John is going to bring forward. We'll see more about John next week, but we can note that his teaching and his presence held such strong authority that many of the Jewish people thought that he was the Messiah. But John, the author of, of this gospel, tells us in no uncertain terms in verses 7 and 8 that he was not the light. Rather, he was a witness to the light. He says it three different ways. He says, he came as a witness. Second, he came to bear witness about the light. Third, he was not the light but he came to bear witness about the light. Okay, John, we get it. He wasn't the light. <laughs> he was a witness to it, though, and he existed to direct our eyes to the light. And in fact, the light himself was a witness. We see that in verse 9. Not only the witness of John the Baptist, but the witness of the light, capital L. 
as I was looking back through my notes from five years ago, I noticed that we took this as a reference to general revelation and the image of God that remains in each of us even after the fall. But I think now I'd say that I think John is probably referring that he's moved on from creation and general revelation. And he's marching towards his big reveal in verse 14 that the word became flesh. And so I think it's better to see in this witness of the light, the person of Jesus Christ shining forth on all people. In coming into the world, Jesus has brought the true light into the world, a light of deeper and fuller brightness than that of general revelation or creation or the image of God within us. It's the true light. And he is the light of revelation for everyone, the one that everyone has to look to if they're going to see God. Nobody can see God unless they look at the true light, and that's who Jesus is. And yet almost in the same breath, John then starts to describe the fact that we all reject the light. We have these these two witnesses, but now there's there's two responses, and the first is that we all reject the light, verses 10 through 11. Verse 10 highlights again the the mystery that's seen in the one through whom the whole world was created, now entering into his world. The picture that comes to my mind is a scene from Mary Poppins where, where Bert is sketching these beautiful scenes on the sidewalk. And then Mary and, and Jane and Michael come along and they look at Bert's creation and through whatever powers Mary Poppins has, they jump into this thing that, that Bert had created. And Jesus, the source and the sustainer and the artist and the creator of our world, jumps in, enters into this place that he has created. But the shock and the surprise of verses 10 and 11 is that the creator, the one who, who made it, is rejected by his creation. He's, he's spurned by his masterpiece. There's different reasons why that happens. We reject Jesus, I think, for two reasons, Mark points out, more than that, but two here. The first is ignorance. Why do we reject the light? Because of ignorance. Mark and I were in the Hong Kong airport a while back, and we walked past a man who was being followed by a large entourage. And after we passed him, Mark told me who it was. He was a fairly well-known celebrity. And I had no idea. <laughs> I'd heard his name before. Mark wants me to tell you. It's 50 Cent. Uh, I had no idea it was 50 Cent. But Mark said, that was 50 Cent. <laughs> I'd heard of 50 Cent before, but I didn't know it was him. And in a similar way, but much worse, uh, in our sinful ignorance, we don't recognize our creator. We're like me at the airport. I don't know who that is. And, and in the same way, The creator enters the world and we don't even know who he is. We're completely ignorant. We're blind to all the witnesses to him and we would walk right past him on the street. Sin is blinding. It keeps us ignorant about the most important things in life and about the most important person to ever walk this earth. Remember this. Our friends and our neighbors and we ourselves reject Jesus because of our sinfulness, but our sinfulness also makes us ignorant. It makes us spiritually blind. We have no idea who Jesus is because of that blindness. The other reason we reject Christ Christ is not just ignorance, but confusion. Confusion. I, I think that's what he's getting at here when he says he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. The world can claim ignorance, but there seems to be a sense in which God's 
chosen people who had been waiting for him should have recognized him. They, they should have seen the signs and realized who he was. They should have spotted how he fulfilled all these words of the Old Testament. But verse 11 says that his own people didn't recognize him. Leon Morris says that this could be translated with the idea that he came home and no one would let him in. Can you imagine arriving home after a long day, you've forgotten your key, you go and knock on the door, and your family won't let you in. Even worse, they don't recognize you. They call the police on you. And so to those who we would have expected to see Jesus for who he truly was, rejected him. He came home, and they said, you're not allowed in. You know, it's interesting. Some of us might imagine that because of who we are, we have this greater likelihood of, of seeing Jesus for who he is. Some of us grew up or are currently growing up in the church, and we hear the good news of the gospel, and we hear the stories of Scripture in our homes, we hear them here in church. But even we who are born into and swim around in the waters of the church and of the Scriptures, we will not see Jesus for who he truly is on our own. We will be confused about just who he is. We will be ignorant of who he is, and we will reject him. Everyone rejects Jesus. But I said there's two responses, right? It's amazing that everybody rejects him, and yet, through the miracle of God's grace, we find in verses 12 and 13 a second response to the witnesses. We all reject the light, but then by God's grace, some receive the light. That's the other response. Some people receive the light. Remember, receive is one of John's uh, euphemisms for believe. Some people believe. In the midst of all this rejection, there are those who receive the word, who welcome him in. And the blessing and the gift that comes from receiving and believing in the word is that we are given a right. And what is the, what is the life that Jesus offers to those who believe? It's this. We're given the authority and the power to call ourselves children of God. We who had rejected God are welcomed back into his family as sons and daughters. Have you heard this phrase, you have no right? <laughs> Someone might have no right to enter your home or to do certain things or to say certain things to you. And, and for all people, our natural and our sinful rejection of Jesus removes our right to say that we are his children. But when we receive Jesus, when we believe who he is as the word of God, the creator of all, the source of all life and light, and the God who has come to save us through his death and burial and resurrection, then he gives us the power and the authority and the right to say that we are children of God. And with that, the certainty that we truly belong to him. We who have run from him and rebelled against him and rejected his goodness when we repent of these sins and we receive Jesus as Messiah and King and believe that, that his finished work on the cross is sufficient to save our souls, we are adopted as children of God. And adoption is the right way to think about it. It's the right way to think about receiving the light because with, with the exception of Jesus, all of God's children are adopted. John gives us three negatives and one positive to talk about why that's true, to talk about the new birth. He says that we are born again, first, not by blood. You're not born again by blood. Literally, you're not born of bloods, meaning of natural procreation through 
the bloodlines of a man and a woman. That's how natural birth happens, but this is a supernatural birth. And we're also reminded that there's no lineage, including being a child of Abraham, that causes someone to bypass being born again. No physical father or mother guarantees that God will be our father. The new birth is not of blood, and it is also not of the will of the flesh. In other words, it's, it's not the result of our own volition or desire. It's not something that we can accomplish in some kind of a natural way or, or even something that we desire in our flesh alone. So Horatius Bonar writes, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Not of blood not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man. John's piling up phrases to show that to receive the right to be called children of God through the new birth is nothing that any human being can accomplish on his or her own. No person, no priest, no pastor, no parent can absolve your sin or intercede for you and save you or give you new spiritual life. There is only one mediator who can cause you to be born again, and it's Jesus Christ. And the coming of Jesus shows us this, that God wants to save us. He wants to restore us. He wants to rescue us. He wants to adopt us and make us his children. And it's so good that he wants to because he's the only one who can. How are we born again? What does John say? It's not by, it, it, it's, it's, we're born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The only way we can be born again is by the will of God. Our entrance into God's family, our new birth as children of God must be of God and God alone. He alone can make us alive so that our hearts will believe and receive him. From these witnesses and responses, John returns now to his discussion of the word in verse 14. And so here's our third and final point. Jesus reveals God to us. Jesus reveals God to us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal, divine, creative, life and light-giving word did something beyond comprehension. He became flesh. J.I. Packer tries to capture the wonder of this when he writes, the word became flesh, God became man, the divine son became a Jew, the almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. I think that's the kind of wonder that John wants us to feel when he uses the word flesh. Flesh can carry the idea of, of sinfulness, which is, is not what John why John uses, it to, uses that word to describe uh, the sinless Son of God. Rather, he uses it because it also carries this idea of, of weakness. When the word became flesh, he put on weakness. And not only that, but when the word became flesh, it meant 
that he could dwell among us in a way unlike had ever been experienced before, except maybe when God walked with Adam in the cool of the garden. You'll remember that the presence of God is a key theme throughout the scriptures. We, we talked about this when we looked at the blessing in number six, where the, the face of God brings blessing because the face of God represents the presence of God. And John understood this, this longing in every human heart and in Israel's history for God's presence. So he uses a word in verse 14 where he says, not only that the word became flesh, but that he dwelt among us, which can be rightly translated tabernacle. Hearkening back to the tabernacle of the Old Testament, that God in Christ became flesh and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the visible presence of God in the flesh, and he is now among his people, not in a cloud, not in fire, not behind a curtain, not hovering above an, an ark, but in a, in a person, in a body. Jesus is God in the flesh. And like the presence of God in the tabernacle, Jesus reveals the glory of God, verse 14. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When the presence of God would fill the tabernacle and the temple, it was a wonderful, awe-inspiring, and fearful thing because this was the God of all glory, the pre-existent creator of all, coming amongst his creation. And the same is true of Jesus. And yet this time, as Wesley writes it, his glory is veiled in flesh. His glory is glimpsed later on in the Mount of the Transfiguration and the resurrection and the ascension, but Jesus doesn't shine forth in any visible way with all of his glory at his birth or even throughout his ministry, ministry because he humbled himself by becoming a man, by taking on weakness. And instead of the brightness of his glory, we see his glory in the way that he comes to us full of grace and truth. That's what, that's what Jesus reveals about God, that he is full of grace and truth. Jesus shows us the goodness and the love and the mercy of God, and he reveals the truth of God about sin and salvation. Jesus shines forth, and he shows all the glory of the gospel. And in fact, John highlights the grace that Jesus comes with. He is said to be so full of grace that it overflows, causing us to receive grace upon grace. And I feel like John could just keep going, upon grace, upon grace. God comes into the world, and what marks him most is grace. He is just, and he is holy, and he is righteous. He is powerful, and he is strong. He is sovereign, but when he walks into our world, he overflows with grace. That grace means that Jesus has come not to judge us, but to restore us to a right relationship with God. As he comes to us, he comes dripping with grace. He embraces us in our sin and in our pain, and his embrace is filled with grace. He holds us close, and he smells like grace. He speaks he speaks the truth, but he speaks it with grace. We look at his face, and when he looks back, it's with eyes 
and a smile that are filled with grace. This idea is, is then set in contrast, though, to the beginning of, of verse 18, where it says that no one has ever seen God. Uh, within the context, it feels a little bit confusing because John just talked about Moses. If, and if anyone comes to our mind when we think about someone seeing God, it's, it's Moses. Moses was the friend of God. He spoke with God face to face. But Moses, we find out, only had a glimpse of God's glory. And yet feel the wonder of this that we who now live after the first coming of Jesus are given the opportunity through faith to see and understand who God is more than Moses, more than the friend of God who spoke with him face to face, more than he or any other saint before the coming of Christ ever could. We are able to look at the person of Jesus and find in him the fullest revelation of the person and the character of our creator. And here's the other miracle, that none of this means that we have to see Jesus in the flesh. We don't need to see him in the flesh to know God because the word has given us the word, the written word. And as we read the scriptures in the light of Jesus and by the Spirit's illumination, we are able to see who God is. And Jesus shows us who God is. And who is he? He is full of glory. He is full of grace and he is full of truth. And this is the Jesus that John wants to reveal to us in the pages of his gospel. What a wonder that we get to study this together, that John is bearing witness to us and calling us to believe in this Jesus. He says to us this, the word has come. The word of God has come into his world so that he can reveal the glory and the grace of God so that everyone who believes in him can be called God's children. Let's take a moment of silence and then I will pray for us. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsel? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen.